You know, it's uh, weird because I've taught three times this year, and all three times we've had Southern barbecue for dinner. I know it's not an omen because I don't believe in omens. I just find it funny. But you know what else is funny? The jokes I'm getting ready to tell. I got three jokes. You guys want to hear some jokes? Funny is a relative term, so I'll let you be the judge of it. You guys ready? Joke number one. What did Sushi A say to Sushi B? What did Sushi A say to Sushi B? Wasabi. That's what I said. Like I said, it's a relative term. Funny is relative. Second one. It's a blonde joke, but I, can, I have license to tell blonde jokes because I'm blonde. So a blonde gal, she walks into a library, and she goes up to the counter, and the librarian says, may I help you? And she says, yes, I'd like a cheeseburger, a large fries, and a large Coke, please. Librarian says, ma'am, this is a library. Blonde says, oh, I'm sorry. I'd like a cheeseburger, large fries, and a large Coke, please. <laughs> tell it to your kids. Take it for what it's worth. And then finally, I'm sure you've heard this one. It's a uh, biblical joke. We know the answer to this one. How come Cain couldn't please God? How come Cain couldn't please God? Because it wasn't able, right? It wasn't able. Not a great joke, but a great segue into our message tonight, right? We're going to read about, uh, like I said, relative. We're going to read about Cain and Abel. So before we get into our passage in 1 John chapter 3, if you could go to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read the account of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, if you're new to the Bible, it's the very first book of the Bible. Go ahead and go there on your, in your uh, hard copy, hardbound Bible or in your, on your mobile device, on your Bible app. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He's a shepherd. And Cain, a worker of the ground. He's a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are, you, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Here's a chance for repentance for Cain. God's given him opportunity to repent. Unfortunately, look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper. And with that, let's go to prayer. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for the Bible. Thanks for this passage we just read, although it's sad and uh, tragic. The heart of uh, men apart from you, God. Um, for those of us here that know you, God, and are, are believers, we're going to look at how we're to love people. And this whole First John, book of First John, it just uh, highlights our love for each other, but most importantly, it highlights your love for us. So we pray that we would all see that tonight as we study your word together, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now let's get into the passage that we're looking at this evening, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through 18. So all the way from the Old Testament to almost the end of the New Testament. 1 John 3, 11 through 18. 
And I'll read that to you as well. <clears throat> it says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. We just read his account. Don't be like him, who is of the evil one, and he murdered his brother, as we just saw in Genesis 4. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's go right back to verse 11, right, right out of the gate here. It says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You go, okay, when did we hear that message and who gave that message? That's a good question. We said we've heard it from the beginning. I put it up here on the screen for us. Jesus is the messenger, if you will, and there's the message. It says this, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. There's once. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another, twice. And then the trifecta, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three times. There's the message. We know who the messenger is. We know what the message is, that we're to love one another. You go, oh, it's New Testament. You got anything in the Old Testament? Yeah, we do. We got Old Testament. I won't turn you there. I'll just read it to you. Leviticus 19, 18. That's where God, the Father, said that we're to love our neighbor even as we love ourselves. That's the standard of love. The same way we love ourselves, we're supposed to love our neighbor. So it goes way, way back. But we're going to talk a lot about love later toward the end. Just put that in your back pocket for now. Look down at verse 12. We're going to, since we just read the story of Cain, we're going to get right into the commentary on him. Look at verse 12 again. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Well, just like today in a court of law, anytime there's a murder, investigators are always looking for motive. In other words, why did the person charged with a 187, that's police talk, cop talk for, for murder, 187, we have any police officers in here? We used to have a lot. Nobody in here? One? One back here, 187, is that murder? Yeah. So they're always looking at the person charged with a 187. Why'd they do it? What was their motive? Let me give you an example. You guys remember the Scott Peterson trial a few years ago? If you don't know Scott Peterson, he was a seemingly normal guy, like would fit in right in this room. At least at appearance, at first appearance. But in 2002, he murdered his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son. She was pregnant with him. And he murdered her, threw her body in the bay. We end up getting caught and get convicted in 2004 and was sentenced to death. He's currently on death row in San Quentin. Point being, when he went to trial, though, the prosecutors had to establish motive. What was Scott Peterson's motive for killing his wife and their unborn son? Well, they come through their investigation. They come to find out that he had a girlfriend on the side, a gal by the name of Amber Fry. And he wanted to be loosed of the constraints of marriage. So instead of divorcing his wife, that would have been wrong too. Been better just to be faithful to her. But instead of divorcing her, he killed her. And that was the motive. That's what they were able to establish. And because of that motive that was established, he was convicted, sentenced, and like I said, now he's on death row. That was, that was his motive. What was Cain's motive? Well, look at the second half of verse 12. Question. Why did he murder him? What was his motive? Answer. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's 
righteous. So if this case were being tried today, what would the prosecutor say the motive was? Jealousy, envy. That's the motive. They would do it today in a a court of law. All kinds of accounts of jealousy and envy in the Bible. If you're keeping up with our DBR, that's our daily Bible reading, just today we read about Joseph and his brothers. Were they jealous of him? Were they envious of him? Yeah, they were. I think about another biblical account. Saul with, with King David. If you remember the story, David goes and he kills Goliath. Then they rout the Philistines. When they come back into town, all the women of the town are singing a song. And it goes like this. I don't know what the tune sounded like. So I don't know how to sing it, but it says something like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, let's put it this way. It wasn't on Saul's playlist. All right. Not, not in Saul's iPod iPhone, iPad, not on his playlist. He hated it. Matter of fact, 1 Samuel 18, 8, I'll just read it to you. It said, Saul, when he heard that song, was very angry, and this saying displeased him, and he said, they have, a, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? He's ten times better than me, at least in their eyes. And then Saul tried on several occasions, a couple times at least. He threw a spear, if you remember, at David, tried to pin him to the wall, He ended up chasing him around the wilderness, hunting him down to take his life for years. And like Cain, Saul's envy led to murder, in his case, attempted murder, attempted 187. But I heard a great definition of envy, jealousy recently. Let me read it to you. It says this. A discontent or an uneasiness at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and a desire to possess equal advantages. Let me read it one more time. Discontent or uneasiness at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and a desire to possess equal advantages. Based on that definition, does that describe Saul and his relationship with David? Absolutely. If you've read that passage recently, you know it does. And uh, how about Cain? Does that describe Cain with his brother Abel? We read in Genesis chapter 4. By all means. Turn it inward. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Are you... Am I characterized by jealousy and envy? Let me give you a few examples. <clears throat> Let's talk to the men first. Could be ladies too, but generally men. Say so you're up for a promotion at work. It's between you and another guy, or you and another gal, whatever. And they get the job and you don't. I understand their disappointment. I've been in that exact scenario where it's between me and another guy and he got the job. I didn't. The promotion. And there's disappointment there. But it's when we allow the disappointment to morph into anger, and then it's going to morph into other things later on, as we'll see. That's when it becomes sin in the life of the believer. How about gals? Maybe you look at someone else's lifestyle, another gal maybe that lives on your street, or maybe even someone here in Thrive. They seem to have the perfect house, seem to have the perfect husband, seem to have the perfect children. They don't have to work. They get to stay home while you have to go to work to help make ends meet for your family. And you're envious, you're jealous of of them for that. Or how about for both men and women? Maybe it's even in ministry here at church. Why are they the small group leader? I obviously know the Bible better than they do. Why are they in the worship band? I sing better than they do. Obviously, I can't say that based on what we just said. (laughs) But some people can, right? And at this point, you might be thinking, Scott, I get it. Okay, we've all been guilty of that stuff. I've been guilty of the guy that got the promotion. I've been guilty of the jealous of the gal across the street with all the seemingly perfect life. Um, jealous of 
leaders. I wish I could be one. Wish I was one. But unlike Cain and unlike Saul, it's never led me to murder anybody. My question is, really? It's never led you to murder anybody? I think we need to take a deeper look. Um, turn, down, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see if you've ever murdered anybody before. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. Begin at verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. You remember, Jesus is always looking at the heart of the matter, not just the outward act, although that's important too, but the heart of the matter. You remember with adultery, he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Yeah, the act, the consequences will be different. But in God's economy, it's the same. The sin's the same. And it's the same here with anger and murder, as we'll see. Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it. This is Jesus talking. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Guarantee if you go out and murder somebody right now, you're going to stand trial for it right here in Orange County Courthouse. You'll stand trial for murder. You'll be liable to judgment. If you're convicted, you're going to either get probably life in prison, death penalty, something bad. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wow. Okay, again, different consequences. But in God's economy, they both say they'll be liable to judgment. Hmm. And he goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, or to hellfire. The question is, how has your jealousy, as my jealousy or envy, led you to become angry with your brother like Cain was? Has your anger led you to, as this passage says, the next natural step when you're angry is you start insulting people. Has it led you to insulting people? You find yourself talking bad about others. You're a believer. And we're talking bad insulting other people. You go so far as calling them a fool. That's, a, that's an example of attacking their character. Think about fool. I think, when I think about fool, I think about Proverbs, right? I don't know about you, but every morning before work, I read a proverb. I read whatever day it is. So like, what's today, 15th? I read Proverbs 15 before I go to work. On the 16th, obviously 16 and so forth. 31, most months have 31 days. But you know when you read, when it says the wise man does da-da-da, but the fool does da-da-da-da, usually the opposite. Do you notice, you might not admit it, but you always put yourself in the wise man category? Do we not? You ever see yourself as the fool? You know, go, no, that's the, that's the other guy, right? He's the fool, I'm the wise guy, right? But what we're saying is, that's when you call somebody a fool, you're saying, hey, that's his character. And, and you say, well, yeah, I maybe never physically murdered anybody, and so therefore the consequences will be different, but you're murdering people with your tongue. Proverbs talks a lot about the tongue, like razors. You just slash people. You murder their reputation. It's called character assassination. We've all done it. But the point of all this is John, like I said, is writing to believers. And he says, don't be like Cain should never be characterized as a believer. Never be characterized by jealousy, by envy, by anger that morphs into insulting others and attacking their character. So I'll put it this way. Number one on our outline, don't emulate Cain. Don't emulate that guy. <clears throat> Remember, 1 John said that he was uh, of the evil one. Verse 10 said he was a child of the devil. That's not a guy you want to emulate. I got a question for Pastor Elliot. Where's Pastor Elliot? Right back here. Pastor Elliot, you guys are pregnant right now, right? You and Andrea, pregnant? With your, uh, 
boy, correct? Third? You got a name picked out? What's his name? Wesley. How come you didn't pick the name Cain? How come you guys aren't naming him Cain? Yeah. What else? Yeah. I don't know anybody naming their baby Cain because that's not someone we want to emulate, right? We don't want to be associated with something like that. So practically, let's not be associated with acting like Cain. Right? Cain hated Abel. Speaking of hate, look back at our passage back in 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, look at verse 13. Seems like a weird place to put this verse, but actually it, I think it falls right into place. John says this, he says, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Well, if the world hates us, we should probably define what the world is. The Greek word is cosmos, and in this context, it's speaking of the world system, or as I looked up in a Bible dictionary, I love this definition, it says the world speaking of the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men and women alienated from God. Let me read that again. The ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men and women that are alienated from God. And although it hurts when people hate us, and make no mistake, it is hate, the Greek word for that is maseo, M-I-S-E-O, and it literally means to detest, to despise, to hate. Don't be surprised when that happens from the world, for this ungodly from this ungodly multitude. I know we're turning a lot of passages, but written by the same guy, John. Turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15. We'll begin in verse 18. If you're hated by the world, you're in good company. Listen to what Jesus has to say about it. John 15, 18. He says, I'll just replace the, the word world with ungodly multitude. He says this, verse 18, If the ungodly multitude hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the ungodly multitude, the ungodly multitude would love you as its own. But because you are not of the ungodly multitude, but I chose you out of the ungodly multitude, therefore the ungodly multitude hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your, yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. Do people hate you without a cause? And let's make sure that it's without a cause, without a good cause. What I mean by that, they shouldn't hate us because we're obnoxious, because we're rude, because we're antagonistic, not conducive to the life of the believer. But they should hate us, as Jesus said in verse 21, on account of my name, on account of the name of Jesus. That's why the world's going to hate us, according to Christ. At this point, maybe you're thinking, you know, Scott, I can't think of anybody that hates me, and I, I don't get persecuted. And that sounds good on the surface, but if that's the case, that should be throwing up some major red flags. If nobody hates you and no one's persecuting you, you don't have to turn to this passage. I put it up here on the screen. Again, Jesus talking, Luke 6, 26. Read this with me. It says, 
Woe to you when all people speak well of you. If everybody's talking good about you, believers, non-believers, mm, not good. For so their fathers did to the, have it underlined, I think it's in red, yep, to the false prophets. You know why they spoke well of the false prophets? Because the false prophets always told them what they wanted to hear. Your life's fine. You're not going to have to give an account to God. They're, God's not going to judge you for that. Everything's cool. They never spoke to them biblical truth, and therefore no one ever had anything bad to say about them. Are you standing up for Christ? Are you what I like to call a chameleon Christian, always trying to blend in? So you're here at church tonight, and you put on your Christian costume, right? But then you go back to work, or in your neighborhood, or wherever, you put, ever, put on whatever costume you feel you need to avoid persecution from the world. Maybe it's they're telling the dirty jokes at work, at the water cooler, whatever. Uh, you don't want to man, walk out of the room or whatever. You just jump in on the dirty jokes or the flirting that goes on at work. Hey, I don't want to be the different guy. Jump right in on that too. You become a chameleon. Matter of fact, if I were to interview your coworkers, your neighbors, or the families on your sports team, or you were to interview in turn... My neighbors, my coworkers, or the families on my kids' sports team, would they even know that we're Christians? Is there enough evidence? Put it this way, number two on our outline, as believers, we need to expect to be hated by the world, by this ungodly multitude. We need to expect to be hated by the world. And the reality is, this ungodly multitude includes members of your own family, assuming if they're unsaved, that is. Maybe you experienced that over the holidays, right? Christmas, Christmas Eve. It makes it pretty awkward, isn't it, at times? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 36, he says, don't think that I came to bring peace but a sword. Not needlessly, but Jesus naturally divides people. Just bring his name up anywhere. It'll divide people. He said a person's enemies will be those of his own household, and that's the reality. And it's sad, but that's true for a believer. So the point being, don't be surprised when that happens. That's what John told us. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. All right, enough talking about Cain, enough talking about hate. Done with that. Let's, let's turn the corner. Let's talk about love. Who wants to talk about love? Sift gears. Uh, look back at our passage, First John. I know we're going all over here. This is good verses. First John 3. Drop all the way down to verse 16. <clears throat> John goes on to say this. He says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The perfect example of Christ laying down his life for us. But Jesus didn't just talk about love, although he did talk about love. He demonstrated it. Matter of fact, I got another verse on the screen here in two versions, Romans 5.8. There's how it says it in the ESV, which most of us have. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I love that. But I like, I think it captures it a little bit better in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. It says this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrates. Real love isn't merely felt. It's not just a sentiment. 
it's also shown by demonstration. And in our passage, it mentions a brother in need and it says, yet you close your heart against him. In other words, it's in your power to meet the need, but you choose not to. How does that demonstrate God's love? How many of you guys watch the show Shark Tank, right? Not about talking about it. It's about doing it, right? They always, they'll get up there and they'll just hype their product to death, right? If you've seen the show, tell how great it is, how it's going to change your life. What do the bidders want to see? They want to say, well, show us, demonstrate it. The real value is in the demonstration. I want to see how this thing works if I'm going to invest. You got here in our passage, John talking about Christian brothers in general, but tonight I want to bring it a little closer to home. I want to literally bring it into your home. We talk about meeting the needs of others within the body of Christ, and I don't want to talk meeting the needs of the person that should be closest to you, your own spouse. Marriage ministry, so let's talk about that. I want to look at three ways each. Three ways that wives can demonstrate love to their husbands, not just talk about how much they love their husband, but demonstrate it, and three ways husbands can love their wives and not just talk about it, but demonstrate it, okay? So ladies first, right? Polite, ladies first. This isn't an exhaustive list, obviously. This is just three examples. But see if you can glean anything from these examples. You know, ladies, a way that you can demonstrate your love to your husband is to follow his lead. I mean, you hear it all the time that women, at least Christian women, saying, man, I want my husband to lead. They go see Pastor Elliot in counseling saying, my husband's not leading. I want him to lead. But guess what? Then he decides to lead and he starts leading. And they go, wait, 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 time out, time out. Well, I want him to lead my way. It doesn't work like that. I work at the fire department at work. You know, we have a chief. His name's Chief Whithorn. He's the head over the department. I don't go to him as a subordinate and say, hey, chief, you're not leading the way I want you to lead. You need to lead this way. It doesn't work like that. There's one head. And in the same way, ladies, there's one head of your home. You need to let him lead. You can demonstrate love to him that way. Second thing, another way you can demonstrate love to your husband is you can protect his name. I can't tell how many times I've heard, I hear it mostly from guys, but gals do it too because I work with mostly guys. Guys and gals bashing their spouse to other people. It's a shame. I'm going to read, I, this isn't original to me. I just found this on the internet, but I like what it said. It says this, that we're to honor, ladies, honor your husband in the way you speak of him to family and friends, guard his reputation, and do not let minor disagreements at home cause you to speak ill of him in public. Let me read that part again. Do not let minor disagreements at home cause you to speak ill of him in public. That's a way you can demonstrate love to your husband. You should be his number one fan, his number one cheerleader. Like Proverbs says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. You don't want to be the, as it goes on to say, the rottenness in his bones because you're always bashing on him. Yeah, he makes mistakes, but don't go tell everybody all the mistakes that he makes. If you need counseling, there's counselors for that. But don't speak ill of him in public. And then finally, this one gets kind of personal. You need to respond to him physically. My question is, how do you respond when your husband makes a romantic overture? Or do you make excuses when he's, quote, in the mood, right? And if you go, where's the proof text for that, biblically? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. I won't turn us there. You can read that later on your own time. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. 
I'll say this, your enthusiastic cooperation and reciprocation will not only demonstrate your love, but will make him feel well-respected too. And you got to remember Ephesians 5, Paul said that about the ladies. He says, husbands are to love their wives, but wives are to respect their husbands. It shows them love and it shows them respect. Just practical ways. Those are just three ways that we can demonstrate love to our husbands. And again, there's many, many others, but those are just three that we're going to cover tonight for the sake of time. Let's talk to the guys now. Guys, ways that you can demonstrate practical love to your wives. Number one, you can choose your wife over your hobbies and your buddies. Things aren't the same. You're married now. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a great thing. All you did was trade one thing for something even better. It's a good. You trade it up. But things aren't the same. Um, maybe for you, it's, it's mountain biking. There's nothing wrong with mountain biking. Mountain biking is a great thing. Maybe it's surfing. Or maybe like with me, when we first got married, it was golf. I worked at a country club at the time. I was the low man on the totem pole. I did, all I did was clean the golf clubs for the rich people when they brought them in. That's what I did. But because of that, I started playing golf all the time. Every single day I played golf. Some days I would play 36 holes. My wife graciously brought it to my attention, and she said, honey, you might want to pray about this. I think it's become an idol in your life. Very gracious in the way she said it, thankfully, and she was right. And so I had to let that sport go. I still play golf from time to time, but just not like I did at one point. Whatever it is that your hobby or if it's your buddies, it should be your wife should be your number one priority, and she should know that she's your number one priority because you show it in practical ways. Number two, be a good listener. Do you ever consider your wife's input? Back to the whole fire chief analogy thing. Although he's the head, Chief Whithorn is the head of our department, he would be crazy if he didn't receive input from his subordinates because we're out there on the line every day doing it. He doesn't get to see what we see. And he would be nuts not to take input from us as his subordinates. We need to take a look at being the head, not always having to make every single decision. We need to balance that with Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which says, remember, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Balance those two between exercising your dominion as the husband, as the head of the house, and taking input from your wife. If you're smart, you'll, you'll do that. I can't tell you the number of times that my wife's given me godly input, godly counsel, and I'm glad I listened. And the times I didn't listen, I've regretted it. So make sure you're a good listener. And then finally, I think the best thing you can do to demonstrate love for your wife, if you're a believer and she's a believer, you need to lead her spiritually. Yeah, Scott, beating a dead horse, talk about this almost every week, it seems like. Well, we'll beat the dead horse until we know that every single man in here is leading his wife spiritually. And what I mean by that is, are you reading the Bible with your wife. You're called to lead her spiritually. Please read the Bible with and to your wife. Oh, she knows more Bible than me. It's intimidating. That's okay. It's like the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You got to start somewhere. You are called to lead your wife spiritually. Are you praying with her? Are you praying for her? You know what's neat about praying with her and for her is that you, talk about intimacy. You find out her heart she finds out your heart. Not only does it draw you closer to God, it draws you closer to each other. It's like that old billboard used to see all the time. It says the family that prays together stays together. A lot of truth to that. 
develops intimacy, not only in your relationship with Christ, but also your relationship with your spouse. And then finally, speaking of number one priority, your wife needs to know the best thing that you can do to demonstrate love for her and to make her feel secure if she's a believing woman is to make sure that she knows that you love Jesus even more than you love her. Does she know that? Do you show that? Put it this way. Number three on our outline. Don't just talk about love. You can talk about it. It's a good thing to talk about. But don't just talk about it. Demonstrate it. Don't just talk about love. Demonstrate it. All right. And some takeaways from tonight. What are the takeaways? Well, like we mentioned, don't be like Cain. We don't be characterized by jealousy, by anger, by hate. James 1.20, I'll just read it to you. It says, the anger of man, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Are you an angry person? The other day, Heather uh, sent me an emoji, not because she was angry with me, but I don't remember what the situation was. You know the little emojis, the happy face emoji you always write after something? You know, put a little happy face? That, like, mostly girls do it, I think. Um, there was one that had an angry emoji. He was red-faced, and he was like this. Would that emoji, would that be your emoji? I mean, we all get angry at times. I understand that. I'm talking, would you be characterized by that emoji? I hope no one in this room would be characterized by anger, by wrath. Let's leave that for the world, for that ungodly multitude, right? We want to be characterized by love. You know, remember, we read it tonight. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples that you love one another. And like we mentioned, it starts in our own home and then it broadens out from there. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, your word, the Bible, God. Thank you for this passage which I think had, like I said, at first glance, seemed like it was kind of all over the place, but I think there was really a good flow to it, God. And uh, we as believers definitely don't want to emulate a guy like Cain and with his anger and his wrath and it doesn't produce the righteousness of God as we read in James. We don't want to be known by that. God, we do understand that the world is going to hate us for being a Christian, but let's make sure it's always suffering for righteousness. God, never, like I said, because of uh, us being obnoxious or rude and the like. And then finally, God, we pray that we would demonstrate the way that you demonstrated love to us in the cross of the perfect example we pray we would demonstrate that in a practical and a daily basis to our, our spouses. We mentioned just a few of the ways we can do that tonight. We'll get into some more in our small group discussion tonight, obviously, Lord. And so thank you for that. And um, we're going to draw closer to you, God, and more rightly represent you in this lost and dying world. And we pray that we would have compassion on the ungodly multitude. I remember, Jesus, that you, you looked out over the, uh, the crowd, God, and you said, it said you had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I pray the ungodly multitude in our lives that we would have compassion on them. Give us an opportunity to share with them that they might be led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen.